0: Well, in reading through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I feel like you're the remnant. After the Babylonians have come and pillaged the land, you're the proud few left here at Compass Night with all the activity. So thanks for sticking it out and persevering. That was a lousy way to start this lecture, wasn't it? But just realize at this point, nine weeks in, we're uh, we're, we're we're separating the boys from the men right here. So that's good. Thanks for hanging in there. We're going to make this worthwhile, I hope, tonight by tackling a real tough passage, and uh, at least attempting to, and dealing with some issues that I think have proved to be controversial over the years, and are more so today than ever before. So let's pray, and then we'll dive right in on a gender-specific pastorate. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the opportunity that we have to study together, just thanks for the ability to sit in a climate-controlled room with uh, electronics for many people sitting in front of them, uh, paper and pen at least, the ability to hear well with uh, audio amplification, uh, having all that we need, all the tools and resources to take our mind and focus them on things that are super important to you because you've revealed them to us in the Word, the things we'll look at tonight multiple times. You've taught us uh, to value these things. So give us clarity, God. Help us even if we read... uh, just in our uh, daily Bible reading, that ability to stand strong when the culture externally wants to pressure us uh, to think differently. Let us uh, understand your revealed word and stand strong on that by doing it, affirming it, uh, championing the cause, and, and really bannering the truth of what you say, regardless uh, of the consequences from people that don't agree. So God, uh, give us the, uh, the insight that we need, the focus that we need. Give us a great night of studying together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. let's talk a little bit about a gender-specific pastorate. Uh, We're going to talk about ministry leaders tonight, but before we get to that, we've got to deal with this issue because it really uh, transcends and intersects both spheres. So just as far as review goes, to get our our bearing on where we are uh, as we deal with this, and this is review obviously, but there are only two biblically sanctioned tiers of leadership in the church. Now you can create 24 if you'd like. Uh, but uh, the Bible only talks about and demonstrates for us by not only example, but by precept that we need to have two levels of leadership in the church. Obviously, most churches create far more than that, but these are the two biblically sanctioned tiers. The pastors, at least that's our shorthand around here for it, includes both presbyteros, poimen, and episkopos. Presbyteros is usually translated, shout it out, Presbyteros is usually translated, what English word? No? Presbyteros, get the word Presbyterian from it, but what, what's the word in the Bible? Nope, you only got one left now. Elder, very good. Presbyteros is usually translated elder. Poimen is translated usually pastor or shepherd. And episkopos is translated bishop or overseer, overseer in the ESV. Wow, let's make sure we get those. Presbyteros is elder. Poimen is pastor or shepherd. Okay. And episkopos is bishop overseer overseer in the ESV all right that's one level they're all the same and Ben was great last week uh, that was his, one of his uh, presentation, or his presentation dealt with that, and he reviewed that again, uh, which was helpful. All of those speak to the same office. If you're not convinced of that yet, I mean, you've got to go back and deal with the passages we've talked about and look at them yourself. These three Greek words all are explanations of one office, and he even gave us a great illustration, did he not, last week? Talked about professor, teacher, doctor, uh, all of them can be used to the same person, the same group of people on a campus, and so it is for pastors. Uh, We just settle in with the word pastor uh, in our nomenclature, our verbiage around the church, uh, I would say primarily because, not because it's the most frequently used New Testament word, but because of the long history in the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible, from the very beginning, uh, starts to give us that sense of the shepherd who guides and feeds and protects. It certainly has the broadest imagery of, of guiding, leadership, feeding, teaching protecting, guarding the doctrine of the church. So pastors is the word we like to use. You can use elder interchangeably. You can use overseer, which is not a very popular word these days. Uh, I rarely hear anybody use that word. Uh, but certainly the people that oversee ministry are the pastors. Then there are the ministry leaders. Okay, And we've already introduced this word, I think, in our series. Uh, I should have checked this. But diakonos, we'll look at that in, in some detail tonight, uh, Diaconos. So we've got the diakonos And we've got the Presbyteros appointment Episcopos, but they only represent two sanctioned tiers of leadership. Now we're going to ask this question of both levels, but we want to start with the level of the pastorate. The question for us tonight is simply this, is the pastorate to be men only? Uh, And of course, if you've been around here, I mean... You were, on, you were watching the stage last week, they were all men, and uh, that certainly is a, uh, a, a shrinking circle of churches that are going to say that's the way it ought to be. So we're going to look at that tonight. We want to work through pa- key passages and think this through. I would love for you to be able to, in the marketplace as every other church that wants to bend to the cultural mores when they say, well, you know, we have Pastor Sam and Pastor Sally and Pastor Mike and Pastor Michelle, and and, and for you to defend that biblically, uh, even if you already believe it, I hope tonight will help you to understand why uh, this is the case and what the Bible has to say specifically about this. Okay, let's talk now about the terms, okay? When it comes to the topic and the question, should this be a male-only, men-only thing, Okay. Or is it gender specific? Okay, you've got two camps, and the first camp is is categorized by, and it should be a word that we get into our vocabulary: egalitarianism. Egalitarianism, and uh, like most French words, it's uh, it's more flamboyant than it ought to be. Uh, but it simply means equal. That's what the word, I know that was the best. Sorry, you French people. I I my descendants I I heard came from France, so um, self-deprecating. Uh, self-critical comments there, I suppose. I've only been there once. Um, egalitarianism. comes from the French word, deals with equal. Of course, when it comes to this topic, what we're saying is that gender equality, okay, gender equality uh, means that when we talk about positions in the church, gender is not a consideration. It's not an issue. It has nothing to do with whether or not someone should be a pastor or anything else in the church because the genders, male and female, are equal. Okay. Gender Equality, what they mean is by that, gender is not an issue. It has no bearing on the question. It is not a a consideration at all. Men, women, doesn't matter. Uh, The opposing view on this is complementarianism. Complementarianism. Uh, It's equally long, but I don't know. Seems better because it comes from Latin. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I'm amusing myself, whether you or, or with me on this or not. Uh, Latin, uh, complementarianism, the, the, the core of that word comes from Latin, and it means to fill up. Uh, we use the word all the time as it comes in from Latin to, to mean to complete. Okay, This is not complementarianism or, or complement as in with an I. It's with an E, and the complementarianism means that these two complement one another or to use the discussion at hand or to describe the discussion at hand, the genders complement one another with distinctive roles. Okay? Uh, There's not egalitarianism and non-egalitarianism, right? There's no such thing. It's egalitarianism in that the gender should not have any discussion in the matter at all, or complementarianism, which of course means that is going to be a consideration because there's distinctions in the Bible in terms of role, and those two roles for the two genders complement one another, so complementarianism and egalitarianism, those are the two banner words. Uh, they're probably uh, familiar to most of you, but if it's new to you or you're new to Christianity or new to discussions in ecclesiology or church leadership, these are the words that we, you ask, right? It's like cessationism or non-cessationism. There's a lot of terms in Christianity. These, they're not going away, so we need to be familiar with them. And the question is, are you egalitarian or are you, are you complementarian? Those, that, that's how the discussion goes. Egalitarianism means doesn't matter. Guys, girls, be pastors all they want. Complimentaries, and we'll wait. There are distinctions and uh, limitations uh, based on um, gender. Okay, uh, the argument. Let's work through the argument of each of these. Okay? Uh, the egalitarians simply make this point as the word communicates. We are equal in Christ. And if we're equal in Christ, then uh, gender has no bearing. And the key text, the central passage in this discussion is Galatians 3, and I want you to turn there once you write all that down so that we can look at this. It is the key text. It is the central text. It is what is always discussed. It is the starting point for every book on egalitarianism. It is how uh, Christians today uh, make the case. And most churches, I don't know, most big churches, a lot of churches, uh, growing numbers, as you can imagine, are egalitarianism because our country is egalitarian. Our culture is egalitarian. I mean, we have laws about egalitarianism, right? And, and, and though there's always a fight to you know, make sure that all of that is equal in every way, um, there is a uh, at least every way that we can socially push the point in our culture. There are limits to it, of course, even in our culture. We, we don't all have unisex bathrooms yet, things like that. But the point is, don't get me off on that stuff, but the point is what? <laughs> that egalitarianism is the culture we live in if we are going to... Um, uh, trying to establish this as what needs to happen in the church, we need to find uh, clear teaching in the Scripture on that. So let's look at this starting in verse 25, 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a, a guardian. Okay? The, the whole point here, is, as you know in women's Bible study, if you're, as you're studying through Galatians, you're not quite here yet, I don't think, but the point of Christ coming and changing so many things as it relates to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and what it means to have faith in Christ The issues on the table were circumcision, that was primary, and also dietary laws, a lot of Levitical law. And since that change of laws we read recently in Hebrews, uh, with the change of the priesthood, change of the laws, uh, the the question on the table here is, now what does that do uh, for all the divisions that we've seen in the past, particularly as it relates to the national distinctions, at least that's where this starts, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. okay, All sons of God through faith. Doesn't matter, uh, as he's going to get into the, the list of, of old distinctions. Verse 27. For as many of you who were placed into, baptizoed into Christ, you've put on Christ. Okay? So now that makes you an heir. That makes you have all the benefits that the Father bestows on the Son. You have that because you're in, in Christ. There is neither. Now the context, again, is national distinctions, primarily the old national distinctions of circumcision, dietary laws, and all the rest. Uh, and and the, 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 the Greeks didn't have that, the ta ethne, the, the nations didn't have that, but the Jews had it. Well, now in Christ, whether you're a Jew or you're a Greek, there's, there's no distinction there. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is, and here's the key phrase, there is no male and no female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's so many issues going on in this text, but let's stick with what the point is trying to be made by most people who hang their egalitarianism on this passage. And that is in verse 28, there's neither male nor female, okay? Uh, The division between Jew and and Greek, Jew and Gentile, obliterated. Slave or free, doesn't matter your economic status. Now, notice we've moved away from the initial argument of the monikers of the Levitical law, circumcision and dietary laws. Now, we've talked about socioeconomic division, which the Levitical law did not establish. There was nothing in the Bible that says, you know, there has to be this distinction between slave and free, uh, certainly as it relates to our relationship with God, uh, and no male or female. Now, here's my understanding of of how the egalitarians will, will take this verse and utilize it. If there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, we have all access to God. And if there's no socioeconomic distinction in our relationship with God, then as we think about the distinction between male and female, how there were limitations in the Levitical law for who would serve as a priest, who would be you know, uh, able to serve in, in terms of, of, of the, the, the burning of incense, the sacrifice of, of animals. Uh, we don't have that anymore. There's no male or female. So anyone can do anything in the church because of this clear statement of being one in Christ. Now, here's the deal. I could be persuaded with that argument uh, if I had nothing else to go on. What I'm going to try to show you is that the rest of Scripture has so much to say about this, particularly the New Testament, as it tries to describe distinctions between male and female, and even male and female roles within the church. And if that's the case, then I have to look at the context and say, if it's not opening up the doors now to any role in the church, what could this be saying? The context is clearly about inclusion. Not inclusion in ministry roles, but inclusion in the body of Christ. And the benefits we have in verse 25, 26, being sons of God. For sons of God, we're heirs. Okay, Even the heir principle of inheriting... What the father is bestowing on the son was a distinction made on gender. This You were not the heir as the daughter. You were the heir as the son, which is one of the reasons when we look at the concept of inheriting what, what Christ has provided, the sonship of Christ and the son of God, the heir, the heir of Christ and the sonship that is tied to that in the Old Testament, it's one of the reasons that even in translation work, we want to keep the Greek word for son, "huios." we want to keep that translating son, because in a lot of contexts we're still talking about how the Jewish riches and inheritance came to the son, the oldest son, not the daughter and not the youngest. That was the principle. And here in the text we have to say if there's, if there's contradictory material elsewhere to take us to an application regarding ministry roles, then I've got to say, what are we talking about here? And, and the answer would be, as I look contextually at this, at the, that we are heirs, as verse 29 says, Abraham's offspring according to the promise, and it has nothing to do with being a male or a female. And as the context in, in, in Galatians says, it has nothing to do with being a slave or a true son, therefore slave or free man. And it has nothing to do with being a Jew or a Greek. Those are the things in the immediate context that relate to the inheritance and the blessing that come through Christ. Um, this, though, is it's not the only argument, but it's the primary argument. It's the really only textual argument that's presented with force as the central uh, persuasion for people saying, see, if there's no male or female, there should be no distinction in the church. Okay? The complementarians, obviously, as the definition of complementarianism as I gave you in the former slide uh, shows, this is simply saying there are prescribed roles and there are distinctions between genders in in the Bible. Now, I want to look at this in three categories, uh, A, B, and C. And let's spend a little time in each of these texts. Now, remember, this is New Testament text, not Old Testament. Whatever is true in Galatians 3 has got to be true in 1 Corinthians 11, okay? And we want to talk about in God's economy, that's what I mean by creation, in God's economy in general, just as created beings, there's distinction that's clearly articulated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So let's spend some time here in this text and work our way through it as best we can in the time that we have. We could spend all night with this text, but let's do what we have time to do. Verse 2, 1 Corinthians 11:2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain, and this is an important word to circle, the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. Some translations, like the NIV used to translate this teaching. Used to, still does, I think, in the latest editions. Um, it's not the word didasko, didaskalos. It's, it's not the word teaching. Uh, it, it's a word that's translated accurately here in the ESV. Traditions, the customs. More on why that's important in a minute. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Now, remember, that picture of a body is is one that is used frequently in the Bible. Uh, The the body looks for direction from the head. And and so we got an analogy working here. But every man, it says, uh, is is to look to Christ as the head. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, that sounds like a marital economy, but we're going to broaden this here as we keep reading. Every man who prays or prophesies, right? this is uh, the activity in a church service, right? with his head covered, dishonors his head, more on that in a minute, and every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, then let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now we're beyond just marriage. We're talking in in broad strokes here. Verse 8. For man was not made from woman. One gender was not made from the other. It's the other way around. But woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. If you read the account in Genesis uh, chapter two, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, the Lord uh, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things, um, all things are from God judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Context here is the the church setting. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, then we have no practice, sometimes translated custom. There's a different word than the word translated uh, tradition up in verse 2, but the same idea. Uh, nor do the churches of God. Okay. Now, you read a text like that, and you quickly recognize, we've got to go slow through this and untangle what, what's going on here. I mean, what's being addressed? Why would, it, why would it matter if you're praying with something on your head or something not on your head? Who would, who would ever care about those things? Uh, why would the angels have any concern about what's on the top of someone's head? What's the deal with the long hair phobia, right? Um, thought Jesus had long hair. That's what all the Renaissance pictures show. Uh, weren't the Jews in the Old Testament always told, you know, they were sparing their razor on all kinds of, you know, things on the top of their head. They weren't supposed to cut the hair on the side of their We had the Nazarites growing their hair long. Um, so a lot of questions in this text abound, and there's a lot of stupid answers that float around. Actually, one commentator says, uh, not a conservative commentator, uh, that this is nothing more than Paul's envy of the Samsons and Absaloms in the Bible because he was probably bald, okay? Um, so, I mean... That that's the level of some... I mean, these things are actually in print. Hard to believe. So let's sort this out. We can sort it out with making a distinction here that uh, I want to make with a line. You don't need to copy this, but just think this through. You could do this on your own, I suppose. There are principles and statements in this text that are universal, permanent, and timeless. Then there are statements in this text which I contend are provincial, they're historical, and they're cultural. And the cues there are, judge for yourselves, the traditions we pass down, the customs that we have or practices, uh, as it says at the bottom of the text. Uh, those are clues to us that there's some distinctions in this text of principle and expression of the, of the principle. So let's, uh, let's see if we can sort this out just by putting the text on one, in one category or the other. Okay? Verse 3, clearly timeless, universal, and permanent principles. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, uh, and, and, and the head of Christ is God. We're now talking about distinctions. Distinctions, by the way, uh, even as the last phrase says, in the economy of the Trinity, which we would say, I mean, anybody who's going to teach on the Trinity, as we did for 13 weeks on Christology, Christ is right, fully God. He is co-equal with God. We want to make it so clear in, in, in the careful language of systematic theology, we don't even say he's equal with God. We make this state, statement that he is co-equal with God. Uh, Christ couldn't be any more God than he is. But in the distinction of, of the economy of the Trinity, we have this very important distinction that's made of Christ right, uh, being headed, if you will, by God the Father. The head of Christ is God. That distinction becomes the paradigm in this passage of God, or Christ rather, being the head of men and men being the head of wife, in this context, uh, uh, a wife and her, her husband. Now, we immediately go into verse 4, which says, every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered. Now, he's going to diss this, right, with the next line. He says this, dishonors his head. Now, think about this. We're not talking about his cranium, his cavesa, his you know dome. We're talking about the head that's described in verse 3, which is his head is Christ. So I'm doing something dishonoring to my head, Christ. This is the problem with the analogy. I don't, are you talking about your literal head or are you talking about Christ's? the head of your life. Christ is the head of my life. The context in Corinth is if you put something on your head, right, you're dishonoring now your head, not your head, right, but the head, Christ. Now, one reason I know we're talking about something provincial, something cultural, something historical, is that all you have to do is go back in the Old Testament and ask the question regarding head coverings in the worship service. Right? Uh, they were required, were they not, for the priests? You had to put a head covering on. There was a description about how the, how the head covering was to be in the worship service for the most holy participants in the worship service. Now, we're all of a sudden speaking to a Greco-Roman culture in Asia Minor, in which was, I've often said, as I've taught through the book, was the orange county of Asia Minor, of the province. It was a very uh, a wealthy place. It had all the latest clothing, all the latest styles. Now, the cultural expression here as it relates to church, was you don't put anything on your head. If you put something on your head, you're dishonoring your head, your leader. Okay? But every wife who prays or prophesied with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head, her husband. Right? That is a sign of her, much like the man covering his head. When the woman doesn't cover her head, right, you dishonored your, your husband. The picture of the shawl, right, which usually went over the top of the head in ancient uh, dress of of Corinth or any Greco-Roman society, at least that that picture of the church service in Corinth, that was a sign of the the leadership or the submission, if you will, to the leadership of a husband. And that head covering was something that showed something that it doesn't show in our culture, certainly in American culture. But in this picture, there was a real concern uh, about that. Uh, Matter of fact, he goes on to say it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now we're almost talking about things that did transcend culture, at least into our day. I mean, we we, we get that. That's the extreme statement. It's so extreme that even if you run the clock forward into America on the other side of the world 2,000 years later, we can even say, okay, I can see that there is even in our day a cultural connection between a gal shaving her head and a sense of rebellion. may not be specifically against male leadership, but there's something to that. So I can connect with the historical context with the head covering. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. Since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, then let her cover her head. For a man ought ought not to cover his head. Now we're back to eternal principles, timeless principles, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Back to the expression in Corinth, that is why a wife ought to Ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, what do the angels care? Which we see throughout any. Uh, discussion, Old or New Testament, the angels being somewhat of the guardians of the worship and the, the spectators. matter of fact, in the intertestamental period, they called them the watchers. The angels were those that attended the people of God and attended the worship of Yahweh. And in the New Testament, the picture's still the same, though it's not a lot of detail on that. The angels now are concerned about head coverings. No, they're concerned about the principle. And the principle was, if there's rebellion here, in, in, the, in the authority, as it's expressed in the culture, they're offended by that. And that's an offense that should, there should be a sensitivity to that. Now, the cultural expressions in our day are much different than the cultural expressions in their day. For instance, if you were in Corinth and a man showed up with a shawl that his wife would have over the top of his head, it would be like a man coming into our service wearing a sundress tonight, right? You'd go, wow, you're making a statement about your gender right now. A little confusing at this point, actually. Uh, but you can go to other places in the world, right? Uh, you, you know, the Scottish kilt, for instance. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I didn't research this tonight, but I mean, there's certainly nobody thinking twice in a traditional outfit in a right setting. A guy wearing a skirt, but you wear a skirt here. We're gonna we're gonna take note of you. Uh, it would it would certainly say something about what you think or what you're expressing about your gender. To have a gal take her shawl off in the first century worship service right, would be uh, tantamount to a gal coming to our service topless. Right? That would be making a statement. Uh, it'd get a lot of attention. Uh, and yet, there are places on the, on the planet right now, and I've been to some, where the gals come to church in the deep jungles of, of Papua New Guinea, in the case of my experience, uh, topless. Uh, and when they see the American missionary, they uh, are careful to put their tops back on, gratefully. But when we fly out, that's just how they, they don't, it's not an issue for them to come to church topless. Do you see what I'm saying? These are cultural expressions that in our day, we have our own. Corinth had their own, right? Uh, Scotland has its own. Uh, Papua New Guinea, Erie and Jaya, it has its own. But whatever the customs are that we can judge for ourselves intuitively about the traditions and customs of the day, we need to take the principles of this text, which is economy not only in the Trinity, but that's the template of the economy in the church, that there is distinctions between men and women, and those distinctions ought to be kept. That's the distinctive, or that's the principle, rather, of this text, and that is distinctions between genders. And whatever that expresses in our day and in our culture, the distinctions of gender need to be maintained. And we can go way back to the Old Testament, which makes the principle much clearer. Women should not dress in men's clothes, and men should not dress in women's clothes. Now, that's a moving target, is it not? But that's something that the Bible has said from the very beginning. Keep the genders distinct. In how you express your masculinity and how you express your femininity, don't blur the lines. Matter of fact, one of the sins in the New Testament was not only homosexuality, which was obviously a, a sin throughout the Bible, but being effeminate. When a man, he may not even be a homosexual, but he portrays himself in, an, in a feminine way. To be an effeminate right, is, is, is a different kind of sin, maybe on the same spectrum, but not the same sin as homosexuality. Those are the kinds of blurring of, of gender distinctions that the Bible is concerned with in 1 Corinthians 11 and one that we should take to heart in recognizing God cares about the distinction between genders, and there should even be, in the way we dress and the way we present ourselves, uh, there ought to be distinctions. And certainly, um, like, like I've said, uh, Absalom, and the commentator made a good point on that at least, Absalom, long hair, no one thought he was feminine. Samson, certainly, no one thought he was feminine, long hair. One of the expressions in the Old Testament of masculinity was your beard, right? Not many beards in the, in the room. Certainly, I see no beards in the room that look like the expression of your masculinity in the Old Testament. And some of you have been to Israel with us, and they still express their masculinity with their beards. That's the whole point, right? Now, how is it that we can be here, most of us with clean-shaven chins, and still feel manly? Why? Because that's, the, that's our culture. There's nothing, there, nothing feels feminine about that. You go back in Old Testament times, there was something feminine about doing that, and that was something that you shouldn't do. What are angels concerned about? The expression of the culture? No. They're concerned about the expression of one's heart. They're concerned about the state and condition of one's heart. And when one comes to church and wants to take the gender that God has assigned to them and wants to now somehow twist it or Pervert it or not maintain it with distinction, the angels take offense to that. Why? Because there's distinction eternally in the Godhead, and there should be distinctions eternally in the genders. Those are established distinctions. That is a lengthy discussion for 14 verses that cannot take Genesis 3, I'm sorry, Galatians 3 and say, oh, no male or female. Clearly, the New Testament doesn't want any distinction between the gender. Here's a long distinction based on the distinctions in the Trinity. All right, there was more to the text. I stopped in the middle of it. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. Now, here's the point that we should make based on the Trinitarian example, and that is that Christ is equal with God the Father, just as the Spirit is co-equal with Christ and uh, the Father is co-equal with the Spirit. There's no distinction there in their value, which is a bit of an addendum on this discussion, so no one abuses the discussion. Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is born of woman. All things are from God. Those are eternal, permanent, universal, timeless truths. Okay? Judge for yourselves now. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? And we're going to say, sure. Why? Because in our culture, there's nothing rebellious about that. As a matter of fact, you want to look at people that still want to use that verse and say, yeah, they should all deck out their heads with, with hats. You find in a lot of churches them violating principles about the kinds of attire that they should wear in church because it isn't about submission. It's not about seeing my distinctiveness as a female. It's really about being ostentatious in a lot of churches that still try to do that. I'm not talking about some of them. Some of them you picture. I'm thinking of the, some of the Southern Baptist churches I've seen where you know things explode on their head. Um, and it seems. But they think going to church with one of those, that's a godly thing, when in reality it borders on uh, violating other biblical principles. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Can't apply that permanently throughout the Old Testament. And if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? Well, that's fairly consistent in the Old Testament, but certainly not consistent uh, beyond that in Roman, Greco-Roman, American, Western culture. I mean, there is some There is some principle here that I think even in our culture, we need to say hairstyles, they make a statement. Uh, For hair hair is given to her as a covering. Uh, Even in that statement beyond the church service, he seems to extend this. Uh, And then he ends it, of course, with verse 15 um, or verse 16 about we have no other instruction uh, for you if you're going to disregard this. Now, a lot more can be said about this. I don't have time, but if you go to the Focal Point website and you just type into the search box, on there, gender. You're going to get two sermons where I spend two entire hours trying to unpack that passage that we just quickly tried to survey. Uh, your gender matters to God. Uh, part one and part two, what God expects from men, what God expects from women. If you haven't listened to those, they're quite old, but I think they're still um, you know, presentable for you to, to put on your iPod and work out to or do whatever you do. Uh, go clothes shopping to. Um, you can listen to those sermons. But the whole point of... of 1 Corinthians 11 is the point I'm trying to make incessantly in those sermons, and that is the distinctions matter. Your gender matters. Uh, It's something that though you can point to a passage in scripture that says there's no marrying or being given in marriage in heaven, right? That will be like the angels and there won't be what we know as covenantal marriage. Uh, It doesn't mean the distinction between genders is gone. I think we'll all be uh, surprised if we've been taught that you know we're, we're become unisex when we die, uh, that masculinity, femininity, male and female is going to continue uh, through eternity, and it's an important distinction that God felt so good about in the garden. It will continue on in the New Jerusalem. Um, that's partly supposition and partly uh, conclusion from all the biblical data. All right, I know more can be said on that, but we've got other tiers of this to discuss. Prescribed roles, hopefully. It's at least enough of a survey of 1 Corinthians 11 to see there are prescribed roles that certainly cannot allow us to, to translate or interpret Galatians 3, 25 through 29, as saying, well, none of that matters anymore. In the home, clearly there's a lot going on uh, in the home in terms of distinction. And let's look at this from Ephesians chapter 5. These are very familiar verses 22 through 33. But let's just look at these, thinking it through in, in terms of the matrix of, of what does God say about distinctions between men and women. In the home, clearly distinctions, lots of words that are describing uh, something that if we went back to the 1 Corinthians 11 template, we see within the Trinity itself. Um, Submission, which I know is a, a filthy word today in, in our feministic culture. But look at verse 22, that wives are called to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. To submit. That picture, um, the Greek word has to do with, with, with seeing myself aligning under the authority of someone else. That, by the way, is what Christ continually said in the gospel of, Luke, or gospel of John, rather. more than any other gospel, he keeps talking about the fact, I'm aligning myself under the authority of the Father and yet claiming at the same time to be equal with God. That's why they wanted to pick up stones to stone him. And yet he says, I'm aligning myself under the authority of God. I don't do anything without consulting the Father. That's the picture throughout the book of John, my paraphrase. But uh, that is the word, that's the picture, that's the idea, that's the image. And in marriage, he says, I want it to be that way in the home. The husband is, here's our picture again of head, the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body... And he himself is its savior. You want to talk about classic complementarianism? The picture of head and body, to go back in our minds to 1 Corinthians, he's going to move from 1 Corinthians 11 to 1 Corinthians 12 and talk about the church. And he says this, you know, just because you're not an eyeball, it doesn't mean you're you're dispensable in the body of Christ. Every part is important. He even says the parts that are not being prominently displayed on the body, we give greater honor to even though we humbly protect them and cover them up. Every part of the body is important. Just because you're, you know, a, a toe and not a, a finger, he says, every part has equal worth. And in the picture of complementarianism, the head and body an analogy in marriage is trying to present us with the same picture. And that is that there's equality in, in personhood, but there's distinction in role. Uh, even by the way, I should go back to the biblical uh, phrase that is used in in Genesis when it says that I'm gonna. It's not good for man to be alone, but I'm gonna make for him a helper right people don't like that i don't want to be a helper to this guy i want to be equal you are equal in personhood but the body assigns you a hebrew word that is also used not only of the son if we were to write the new testament in in hebrew but in the old testament itself god calls himself the helper right i mean if if this is a demeaning word god would never take this word on to himself He calls himself the helper of Israel. And in the New Testament, the equivalent word is the parakletos, and that's the Greek word that's used of the entire ministry of the Holy Spirit. And no one's going to treat the Holy Spirit with a lack of respect because, ask Ananias and Sapphira, you want to lie to the Holy Spirit, right? You've lied to God, and he might strike you dead, as he did by way of example uh, in the book of Acts. But the point is, complementarianism speaks of nothing uh, to, it speaks nothing to to detract from the value of. Uh, the personhood, the equality of, of the worth of the person. As the church, as the, uh, verse 24, as the church submits to Christ so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless, the servant leadership of Christ, the submission of the church, those are pictures and templates for the home. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes it and cherishes it. There's the words that came into the common book of prayer and into almost every wedding ceremony uh, for the last few hundred years, uh, as Christ does the church. We're supposed to cherish, nourish, care for our bride. Because we are members of his body, Christ does that for us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. There's equality, there's sameness, but it does not separate what he's just said for the last, you know, 10 verses. And that is there's distinction in the roles. This mystery is profound. There's a lot to it. Uh, He says, but what I'm saying refers to Christ in the church. That's the whole point of employing the marriage illustration as something to illuminate our minds regarding Christ and the church. However, this is a true principle. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Uh, Which, by the way, the Bible says is going to be tremendously hard because of the fall, because during the curse and the penalty of the fall, when you saw the usurping of the authority and the administration in the marriage... Uh, In the taking of the fruit by the woman, the Bible says that there's going to be an animosity not only between the woman and the serpent, but there's going to be animosity, at least difficulty in the marriage relationship in the woman wanting to usurp authority like she did in the garden. And that's why one of the reasons that uh, it's not an easy task, neither for men to sacrifice for their wives or wives to respect the leadership of their husbands. Now, there's a ton we could say about that. And I preach on it from time to time, but the thing I think that, um, or the series I think, that probably has given the most clear explanation of this was a series I did many years ago called Slaying the Family Dragons. And by the way, if you want to find this on Focal Point, uh, fpr.info, focalpointministries.org, type into the search box just the word dragons, and you'll find this series that will pop up. You don't need to know all the dates or the numbers or any of that. But the first one is dealing with the two-headed family. That's slaying the family dragons, conquering the two-headed family. Uh, if we want equality, I'm all for that. But if you want equality in roles, you've got a real problem on your hands. There's no such thing. Uh, it doesn't work. You're setting your marriage up for endless battles and fights. And, uh, and so that was the beginning of the series. And I dealt with uh, submission, leadership, headship, roles in marriage. And uh, that was way back in 2001. But it's a series, perhaps, that you might need if you need more on understanding the complementarianism of male and female roles in the, ma- in, in the home. All right, now let's get to the topic at hand, and that is in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We could look at other texts, but let's just, for the sake of time, look at this one in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Complementarianism in the church. Prescribed roles in nature, prescribed roles in the home, prescribed roles in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just to get some context, let's start in verse 8 which is what I stated, I realize, but it sets us up for where we're going here. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Okay? There's the innocence, there's the sense of I'm right with God, there's, there's no insincerity, there's nothing held back. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, or gold, or in or, gold, and pearl, or pearls, and costly attire. Um, by the way, God is not opposed to those things, right? If you look back in the Scripture, you could read the Song of Solomon, which we read not long ago in our daily Bible reading. Uh, you can read uh, so many texts that you know. There, there's obviously the uh, celebration of the expression of femininity through the apparel of a woman. The point here, as we're dealing with the issue of The context of the church, as we'll see, there was enough hint of that in verse number eight, but he's going to make it clear we're talking about the context of the church. It's not a place for us to display ostentatiously our our apparel or our social status or our ability to dress in a way that's better than everybody else. So that's the picture here. We're not going all out to, to, you know, deuter up our, is that even a word? To to don the latest stuff and, and, and make yourself stand out from the crowd. That's not the point. Of dressing for church, it is instead verse number ten uh, that you should but you should dress in what's proper for women who profess godliness. You really want to put on some apparel, put on good works, be known for that. Show up, and they uh, people see you you know being the person who who serves God sincerely and does good things. Verse eleven: Let a woman quietly learn quietly with all submissiveness. That's the common word in the egalitarian or the complementarianistic d- descriptions throughout the Bible in in the roles. And now it's saying in the context of church, as we'll see in a minute, uh, that there needs to be a deference in the church economy for the women to not take the teaching roles, as it says next in verse 12. And in the teaching roles, it has to be modified because it's not teaching completely in wholesale statement, as, as we'll read verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's the point, the context of this complementarianism is not women aren't exegetes, they're not exposers. not preachers. That's not the point. As a matter of fact, we could look over in Titus where there's a huge need of ministry in the church for women expositing and teaching the, the, the younger women, teaching the word to younger women, uh, and also to our children, of course. And so the prohibition in this text doesn't have to do uh, with, with a wholesale disregard for teaching, uh, for women teaching. It has to do with the context of the teaching teaching or exercising authority over man in the context of uh, a mixed crowd." Rather, she's to remain quiet in the settings of the church where there is teaching going on. This is something that the men did. And even in the context of the first century synagogue, there would be interaction oftentimes in the crowd and the, the, the rotating pulpit that they would often have and reading the text, sitting down, another guy coming up. This was something that was to be done uh, among the men and specifically as the Bible makes clear even in the, this particular book uh, that there were those gifted to teach and they ought to be given the floor to teach. And then he roots this in creation, because a lot of people say, in reading verse 12, see, Paul says, I don't permit it. So that was provincial, that was cultural, that was just his standard. But he roots this in creation, just as all the other texts that try to discuss uh, complementarianism, it always goes back to something bigger than just the culture. It says, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. There was some kind of, of structure and order to the male-female relationship even from the beginning. and He's now applying it to the church. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, which even in that, it sounds like uh, you know, the guy was a whole lot better. But as we'll see, uh, we don't have time for all the passages tonight, but the point was, uh, yeah, she was the first to be deceived and to lead mankind into sin, but it was the man who willfully engaged in sin uh, to, to rebel against God, likely for the sake of his own wife. But the point is, that's, a, the, that's not the point being made here. The point being made here was, this is a bummer. Sin came into the, to the, to the universe through the woman. Yet, she will be saved, and you need a note in the margin of your Bible so we don't confuse this, uh, through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If you take the word saved and you just only apply it in one way, right? you're going to think this is a bizarre passage, because it would seemingly stand in conflict to tons of other texts that talk about salvation having nothing to do with your procreation or you know, reproduction. It has to do with your faith in Christ, and that's what it has to do with. Well, this is not talking about salvific you know, justification, that God counts my sins not against me but against Christ if you have babies. Clearly, that's not the case. If that's the case, you would think that there would be a high premium on making sure that every Christian got married. And yet from the beginning, even in the New Testament, there's a value on singleness. Not a requirement, not a requirement for the clergy or for ministers or pastors, but clearly a value on it. Christ says if you can, you should. Uh, So Christ himself was the the archetypal example of singleness and not reproducing uh, physically. So what are we talking about here? Here is something that clearly disses the the gender. I mean, not, not on purpose, but just by way of indicatively saying sin came through the woman. That's going to make every woman, I hope, who identifies with Eve go, bummer, wish she shouldn't have done that. Terrible that the woman got this thing started in, in sin. Here's the saved part. It'd be, you could use the word redeemed, right? Uh, yet she will be redeemed, right? In other words, you don't have to lament the fact that your gender got sin going in the universe, right? Why? Because there's redemption for you. You're not, you don't have loser on your forehead because you're a woman. You can reverse that seemingly bad reputation that's thrown on your mind when you think about women starting sin in the garden, right? Uh, you, can, you can redeem that. You can fix that right? through several things. What does the Bible say? Back in 1 Corinthians 11, men can't even get here on planet Earth without you providing them life. Right? The value of motherhood is high, even though the value of singleness is, is high, and celibacy in the Bible, in this text and in others, this value of women producing life, not just for women, but for men and women. You become indispensable to every man on the planet. This is a defense when the man wants to say, yeah, you women, you you got sin going in the universe. You're terrible, you women. You're so easily deceived, right? The defense and the salvation and the redemption in that charge, the apologetic is, right? How'd you get here, right? It was a woman, wasn't it? You're saved and salvaged in your reputation on planet Earth because you're the bearer of children. Guys can't do that. Guys can't bring life into this world. Right? They're just a participant, a very simple participant in the process. You're the one manufacturing children, both men and, and women. You save and salvage that loser reputation that you might be tempted to take upon yourself in a passage like this, because he's pointing out the obvious that the women, right, the woman was the one through whom sin came. You fix that through childbearing. That's one thing. But what if you're what if you're infertile, like a lot of the godly women in the Bible? Right? He goes on to say. Uh, and if they continue right, it 's not an and here, but it 's a it 's another statement if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control you can certainly get any f- cloud of feeling like, yeah, women are just easy, you know easily deceived and sinners, no no, no, your life can be a testament to the very opposite of that as a godly woman, not only do you manufacture life and give every man on the planet life, and no man got here without a woman but You become a paragon of faith, love, holiness, self-control. You clearly show. Yeah, Eve might have been a loser, right? Uh, But there's redemption in the fact that my life reflects the opposite. I control my appetites. She looked at the apple tempter said, Oh, it's great. Good for food. Good for wisdom. Take it, take it, take it. You're using self-control. You're showing that you don't fall for that. You're showing that you trust God, you love God, that you're holy, that you show self-control. That redeems any sort of you know, bad label on your gender, see? So be godly. And it's interesting, by the way, that women often set the pace in virtue in the church... Right? And I think there's redemption in that. Not only you produce life and no man got here without a woman, but there's often a very real outworking of the Spirit of God in the church doing the very thing this text says. That often t- I'm not saying you know women are sinless, obviously, but they often do set the pace in terms of, of virtue. We, we always have more gals going through partners, you know, more showing up for whatever it might be in most cases. The men are always needing a lot more prodding, it seems, in the body of Christ. But the distinction here that is just like the distinction in the home and in creation, is one that's applied to the church. Very specifically, that she isn't to teach or exercise authority over men in the church. And in that expression of the complementary roles that they have, we recognize that you can't be a pastor and not teach. Not teach over the church. That's the point and one of the essential requirements of being the pastor or being a pastor in the church. Now there's a ton more we could say on this which we don't have time for either. But let me give you this uh, recommendation, which is a book uh, everybody should have uh, in their library. I think it's very helpful. It's a compilation of articles by a lot of great evangelical writers today. The editors are John Piper, who you know, and Wayne Grudem, most of you know. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And the teeny tiny subtitle there, which can't, I can't even read, but it, I know what it is, it's a response uh, to evangelical feminism. Because today people are saying, I'm an evangelical, I believe the Bible, I have a high view of God, high view of Scripture, but you know what, there's, there's no distinction, uh, certainly in roles in the church based on gender. Gender has no bearing on that question. This is a book, a big fat book, 400 plus pages in response to that. And I know what you're saying, you're always want to buy books, you're never you never have money, can't go to the movies anymore, you're always buying books. Great, I got an answer for you. Type in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and add this in your Google search window. Add the, add the letters PDF after the end of it, okay? PDF. It's going to take you to this first, it's going to take you to this first hit on your Google search. And, and if you click on that, it takes you to a free download of this book. You don't even need a Kindle for this. It'll download as a PDF right to your computer. So many of you with your laptops right now can have this book before I'm even done with this paragraph. And you've, you've got it. And you just look through the table of contents on this and you can uh, find something, I'm sure, that may have tweaked in your mind when I was going through discussions of distinctions in the church and roles and quietness and submission and all that stuff that seems so abhorrent to the modern woman. Uh, You can read a very articulate, clear, biblically sound exposition of the passages in question in this book and you can get it for free right now carry it around on your phone or your laptop or your ipad or whatever and you can read it it costs absolutely nothing you want to buy the book obviously it costs something but it's available for free and uh, all you got to do is get the title and add the letters pdf and you'll have it so you can't beat that free book right and a great book at that not many great books for free uh, but very helpful book and you're all going to get it right even if you don't read it be good to have it Just to feel like you could read it if you had to. Uh, That was a dumb statement. All right. Good enough? No. Okay, well, that's all I got time for. On the back. Ministry leaders. Ministry leaders. Ministry leaders. Talk about the way we use the word pastor around here as the chosen vocabulary word for presbyteros, poimen, episkopos. Presbyteros, by the way, means what? Translates what? See if you can remember from the beginning. Poimen translates what word? Pastor. Episkopos. Overseer, great. Remember that week from now. Uh, let's talk about the word here that we're translating into the vocabulary around Compass Bible Church. We translate it ministry leaders. What's the word? The word is diakonos, diakonos. It appears 29 times in the New Testament, Diaconos. And as I often say, um, by the way, 29 references, that's, that's quite a few for just that one noun. We'll talk about variations on the word in a minute. But like the word angel, Uh, Apostle baptism I often make the distinction and I know you know it but let me say it again It's the difference between translating a word and transliterating a word Transliterating just takes the letters from Greek and puts them into our Latin letters our English letters And that's transliterating it doesn't translate it. Okay, that's what's going on here Uh, Most of the time when we use the word deacon uh, We're taking a transliterated word that in our minds we should recognize is not being translated It's just being said in a different language I mean, you're really speaking a Greek word when you say the word deacon. Okay? If you look in a translation like your ESV, you're only going to find the Greek word—I'm sorry, the English word deacon three times. But I've just told you 29 times. If you're reading a Greek New Testament, you'll see the word diakonos. three times. They choose to translate it deacon or deacons three times—only three times. Okay? Which is a bit of a telling statement because, well, we'll get into that. Okay? When it's translated. This will help us to understand what ministry leaders are when we're not talking about a transliterated word. There are three words that it's translated into in our Bibles. It's translated servant or servants 18 times. Got the Greek word diakonos, three times deacon, 18 times servant. Now, what did we learn last? Was it last week, two weeks ago? Was it Sunday? I don't know. What is translated What's the Greek word underlying the word servant a lot of times in the New Testament? It was Sunday I was teaching on this. Doulos, right? Mary said, uh, I am the, the doulae of the curios. I'm the, I'm the servant girl of the Lord. Okay? That's a big word. That's an important word. That's a great word. When you see it, a lot of times the English translators translate it servant. Okay, this is the problem reading English text. Well, sometimes it's that and it's strong, slave. Okay? Sometimes you read the word servant and it's the word diakonos. 18 times it's, it's that. That's why your Bible software is sometimes helpful because the nuances between uh, doulos and um, diakonos are different, as we're going to see. Attendance, this is probably not helpful. Um, it's used in a parable once that Jesus, uh, it's translated once, attendance in a parable Jesus spoke. And lastly, this may be the most helpful translation for us, at least in kind of piecing all this together in our minds, minister or ministers seven times that's helpful because when we talk about ministers we're really talking about diakonos that's not how english-speaking people in the culture use the word minister matter of fact i get used to saying the word minister because technically and legally that's how the government views me i'm more than that in the biblical economy but they like the word unlike my tax returns right what do you do occupation minister now that's the bible word for pastor or priest, or whatever. But the idea is, in the Scripture, that's the diakonos. That's the second tier of leadership in the church. We'll talk about that. Let's come back to some of that. Number four, related words. Now, diaconos is a noun, right? So is um, diakonia. That's also a noun, diakonia. But it's a different word. Translates a different concept, as you'll see here. Um, similar, of course, obviously, cognate, related. That's 34 times in the New Testament. Now, you'll see this is quickly turned into ministry or service. If minister, diakonos, diakoni, ministry, diakonos, servant, diakoni, service, obvious. Diakonos, do the diakoni, the servant, do the service, the, the servants do the service. The ministers do the ministry, they're involved in ministry. And we use that a lot too, right? We'd say the pastors, what do you do? I'm, in, I'm involved in ministry, Really what you're saying there is not biblically tight or biblically precise because what you're saying in that, if you're really uh, Episcopas poimen or presbyteros, you're saying, I do deacon work, which is really not what you do, but that's how the world understands that. I'm involved in ministry. I do ministry for a living. I'm a minister, but that's not biblically tight or accurate. Not that it matters to them, but for you, you, know, you can know the distinction. Here's the verb, diakoneo, Um That's 37 times. Now this is the verb. Now this one's obvious too, and there are a couple other translations, but primarily this is ministering and serving, ministering and serving, right? The diakonos are involved in diakoni because they diakoneo, right? The ministers do the ministry and they're ministering when they do that. Servants do the service because they're serving the verb. One more word I should say that we don't, See in the Bible, but it's an English word that's transliterated, especially in Roman Catholic and some other high churches. The diaconate, or the, there's two different ways to pronounce it, but the diaconate, um, or the diaconate, some say, two ways to pronounce that. That refers to the class or the group or the team of diaconos or the deacons. If you're involved or meeting in the diaconate or the diaconate, that's all the deacons in, the, in their team. All right, probably not necessary. With that, I've exhausted all the uses of that word. Now, let's talk about that. This will all come together, believe it or not, I hope. Ministry leaders and gender, okay? The ministry leaders, the diakonos and gender. Here's an interesting observation. You'll find in the Greek New Testament, diakonos and diakonon. And diakonos is masculine and diakonon is feminine. Example, once you write that down, turn with me to Romans 16. And depending on your translation, it's translated different ways. But you need to know, here's the word that we see in the pastoral epistles, which we'll get to, and it is describing a female, and it's used in the feminine. Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Now, some of you heard me preach through this. This is the end. He's got all these names he's about to go through here. But he starts at the top of the list. I mean, this is a big deal that she's at the top of the list. He commends to the Romans and the Roman Christians in the Roman church I commend to you our sister, if it wasn't clear enough by the feminine noun that's coming next, her name, Phoebe, a diaconon of the church of Synchria. Okay. Now, I see here, reading my ESV, it's got a little footnote, which yours does too, right? What does it say in the margin or the, the footnote there? Deaconess. Okay? If you're going to take the word deacon, diakonos, and translate it, you trans- or transliterate it, you translate it deacon. If you want to turn that into a feminine, right? Languages have a way to try and figure out how to make it sound feminine. You take the word diaconon, which is the noun in the feminine. They translate it deaconess, okay? Now, interesting here. This sounds pretty formal, does it not? You got Phoebe, she's a sister, and she's a diaconon, a deaconess, if you just transliterate it, of the, of the church. Not even at the church or in the church, of the church of Sencria. Sounds like a pretty important, clear role that she plays in the church sounds like an important person sounds like as we turn later in the new testament to talking about the two tiers of leadership sounds like she's in that second tier of leadership in the church in the feminine now syntax of of first timothy three let's jot that down and then turn with me to first timothy chapter three. First timothy chapter three here's where we are seeing paul spell out the requirements for the presbyteros, poimen episkopos and the diakonos, if the question is, is the second tier of leadership in the church, is it gender specific? You could look at Romans 16:1 and say, well, it sounds like maybe it's not, because I got a gal right here that seems like this is not a just a general use of the word. Like she's just a servant, she's just ministering. Sounds like an informal role that she plays in the church as the you know one of the deaconesses of the church. First Timothy chapter three it starts this way. Um, Verse 1, trustworthy saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, desires a noble task, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, and on we go through the list. Okay. Now, new heading in the ESV at verse 8. Do you see it? Deacons, likewise, must be, now we get a list, dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy, not, dis- not greedy for a dishonest gain, hold the mystery of the faith, blah, 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 blah. Verse 11, Their their wives, likewise, must be, okay? Now, if you took the Greek sentences and stacked them on top of each other, here's what you'd see, and this is all in English, but look at what you'd see. You'd see a very clear statement starting a paradigm, syntax, by syntax, that's what we mean. We're starting to build a structure. The syntax of the language in this passage starts with a requirement statement. If you're gonna be an episkopos, you gotta be these things. Verse eight then says, right, uh, Hos atos, which is the the word translated likewise, you've got to now, if you're going to be a diakonos, you've got to likewise be, now you're required to be this. Here comes some more. When you get to verse 11, you see the same Greek construction, the same paradigm, the same structure. What's translated in your English text, their wives likewise must be. I put the word there in brackets. Why? Because there ain't there. That's not there. There is no there. There's nothing in the grammar of the word "wives." There's nothing. There's no. There's no uh, any 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 demonstrative pronoun. There's nothing going on in that text that provides the word "there." Not grammatically. Contextually, that's what the translators think is going on. So they say their wives. Bit of a problem. A uh, couple things. Number one, there's no there in the in the text. It's a interpretive decision by the translators to put it in. Okay. Here's the other thing that makes us question this. Word for wives here is gune in Greek. Funny sounding Greek word. Okay. Uh, it's in the plural. doesn't say a deacon's wife must be. Right? It doesn't provide this, any attachment to a noun like diakonos. Uh, it's just the word gune. Gune is used 217 times in the New Testament. Okay. 89 times it translates contextually wife usually though it translates 122 times just a woman it just now moves in vocabulary to speaking of females whatever the context is and we have to make a decision as we're translating are we talking about the woman that goes with that guy or are we just talking about a woman or women in general the word is often speaking just of women now if you read that text up top there again therefore an overseer, you want to be a episcopus. you got to be all this If you're going to be a deacon now, likewise, you've got some requirements, and and here are some of your requirements. Now, the women in the context that are going to do this work, they've got to be, right. they likewise, same exact Greek construction, not their wives. Right? There's no deacon's wives. It's just wives. It's not a deacon's wife. A lot of the things that speak, at least in context, to picturing the individual person's got to be this. Here we get the plural, which matches the syntax. We get the word likewise, host, autos, same word. Syntax is the same. Requirements that follow. Okay. Now, here's one more thing to consider. It is odd to have spelled out the requirements for deacons' wives with no mention of requirements for pastors' wives. Okay? We're going to have the same kinds of discussion in what follows as it picks up again the diakonos, They've got to be the husband of one wife managing their own children and households well. Well, we get that of the, of the, of the Episcopos as well, the, the, the pastors. But here we have something. Are you telling me the requirement is going to be more specific for the second tier of leadership than the first tier of leadership? That doesn't match anything in the pastoral epistles. Because of the top leadership, the scrutiny on their lives is even more scrutinized. The volume of discussion about what they must be is more. The deacons is much less. Now we have a statement in the middle of the deacons, which we do see in the feminine in the New Testament. We have now the same syntax that the women have to be these things. Women? What are you talking about? Their wives? I would expect a different kind of sentence here. I would expect a a different kind of construction. I would expect some clarity. I don't think that Christ uh, or the Holy Spirit in in inspiring this text is trying to give us a set of requirements for what the deacons' wives have got to be. That's my opinion based on the syntax of 1 Timothy 3. If the backdrop of the understanding of Timothy as the recipient of this letter was gender-specific pastorate, non-gender-specific diaconos or diakonot, then, then what? Then I would think that here, clearly the way Timothy's going to read this is if you're a woman deacon, then you've got to be these things. Now look at the things that it says in verse 11. Dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. If you just take those four things and look throughout the Bible, certainly the New Testament, about the concerns that god has for the propensities of women in their sin you'll find these matching clearly to what we see elsewhere in other words these are the things that we would see often not matching one for one everywhere else but we see the theme of you know what careful in your mouth and what you say right and the dignity uh sober-minded faithful in all things even we saw a little bit of that in first timothy chapter two what's the point I think this is a requirement that takes the deacon requirement, gets specific on some female requirements within the diakonos, and moves on back to the deacons, uh, not the wives of the deacons. Then all I have to do is look throughout the New Testament for how often we see people like Phoebe who rise to prominence in the New Testament in being important ministry leaders in the church. Uh, Do I see those? I see all kinds of them uh i'll just name some romans chapter 16 if you were to go on from romans 16 to verse 3 there's a bunch in, in romans 16 but you'll see priscilla and aquila remember them and unfortunately the way it's spelled there uh and the way the esv translators decided to translate it in all the references to her in first in corinthians and in romans is prisca it's confusing enough to know which is the man and the woman when you hear priscilla and aquila they talk about gender distinctions you should have started with your names but uh then when you call her prisca and aquila Then I'm thinking, for sure I got this messed up. But Prisca is the female. Priscilla is the female. Uh, Aquila is the man. But the point is, here's how she's described. My fellow workers in Christ, they risk their necks for my life. I don't give thanks for them, but in all the churches as well. Greet also the church in their house. So I know they're hosting a church there in their house. They're prominent figures in the house. He calls them fellow workers in Christ. He sees some kinship to them and that couple, as we saw in the book of Acts as well. Uh, Junia. In verse 7 of Romans 16, um, well known to the apostles. Uh, they are my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. Uh, anyway, Junia. Colossians 4.15, nympha of all names, uh, and the church that's in her house. Whatever role she is, she's not only hostess, it seems, uh, perhaps, and that may be a stretch to add much more to that, but that's what it says. Hosting this in the house, uh, nympha seems to be important. Iodia and Syntyche. Remember that from Philippians chapter uh, 4, verses 2 and 3? Here's what they, he says next in verse 3. He says, they're true companions. And I know they're messing up in this book, and he's saying they're fighting and make them get along. But he says, they've labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose name's in the book of life. Iodia, Syntyche, Nymphia, Junia, Pris, uh, Priscilla, Prisca. So many prominent female figures that seem to rise to the surface of ministry in the church. Uh, are there more men mentioned? Absolutely. But there are gals that seem more than just, you know, um, just the the rank-and-file servants in the church. This is actually an argument in my mind that uh, the second tier of leadership needs to be uh, not gender-specific. Let me argue for this real quick. When this is debated, and the people that want to argue with me about this, it's usually because they are coming from churches where the word deacon is misused. Um, and again, not that it matters what the government thinks or the culture thinks about minister and pastor and all that, but in churches, when you start to take the language of the Bible and mix it up, that's a problem. You go to a lot of Southern Baptist churches. The people that rule, and by that I mean administrate and are the final authority in the church, they're called the deacons, usually the deacon board, right? That's taking the second tier of leadership in the Bible and using that name to describe the first tier of leadership in the Bible. If they're ruling the church, and by that I mean, I use the language of First Timothy, that they're actually administrating and making the authoritative decisions about what should be done in the church, then they shouldn't be called deacons. But that nomenclature, that vocabulary has been so ingrained in so many churches in America that when, some, when you say to someone, deacons can be deacons or deaconesses, deacons can be male or female, they say, well, wait a minute. The Bible's pretty clear about the top tier of leadership being male, gender-specific. And you're telling me that, that deacons can be male or female? That doesn't make sense. Why? Because in their mind, they see deacons as the first-tier leadership, the ultimate buck-stops-here leadership in the church, not the second tier of leadership. So if we get the terms straight, and in our minds we keep them that way, and we talk about gender-specific pastorate, then we look at the deacons, we've got enough biblical evidence to recognize that the ministry leaders in the church, male or female. That's not gender-specific. That's my contention, at least. All right. Letter C, I wanted you to write this down because I think it's an important thing for us to, uh, to write down. Not everyone, of course, I put a qualifier on this, is a First Timothy 3 deacon. The only reason I want you to write that down and write it out with your own hand is because this is the new common thing in churches like ours these days. And that is, we have presbyteros, poyman, episcopos. We got one level of leadership. We got a team. They're, they're the pastors, the elders, the overseers, whatever you want to call them. We got the guys that, that lead the church. But then everyone's a deacon, okay? That, super common. You'll hear that all over the place. That seems to be catching on. Everybody's a deacon, everybody's a deacon. So we don't worry about, you know, deacons in our church. Um, the confusion is caused in part because of the technical and non-technical use of the word diaconos. I said to you that the ESV only translates the word diakonos, deacon, three times, okay? That is even a hint that oftentimes the word diakonos is used. We're not talking about the technical use of the word, and that is some group within the church that needs to meet certain requirements and serves in specific ways and has this exemplary lifestyle because they're leading in prominent places in the church under the administrative oversight of the pastors. In other words, there are two uses of the word diakonos. Just because we can see a non-technical use of the word, we don't get up and say everyone's a deacon, everyone's a ministry leader. In other words, it's like the word apostle we could say the same thing about the word apostle. The word apostle is used in a technical sense and a non-technical sense. The apostles, there's 12 of them. There's 12 people that are technically defined as apostles. Then there's a bunch of other people that are talked about as sent ones. They were sent to do this, they sent to do that. They're also called apostles. They're emissaries, they're messengers. There are a lot of different things and that word is applied to them. But we're not talking about the apostles, the apostles. It's like seeing that in the Bible, a technical and non-technical sense and saying everybody's an apostle. Now, if I got up at church and said everybody's an apostle... That would be confusing because when you use the word apostle, you're thinking the apostles. When I use the word deacon, we're thinking the deacons from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But what, what's, what's the problem with that? You're taking the non-technical use and you're really confusing the body of Christ by trying to use that broadly. Now, I admit this. All are called to serve. You don't need to turn to this passage, but at least jot it down. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10. I'll put it on the screen for you. I told you that diaconos is used not only as, as a noun, it's also used as a verb, diakaneo And in this text, we have that, and look at how this is all-encompassing. As each has received a gift, you know this passage, use it to diakaneo one another as good stewards of God's very grace. How do they translate in the ESV? Serve one another. There's the use of the word diakaneo not talking about the deacons. We're talking about everybody in the church, no matter what God has invested in you, Put your, your gift to use, if you will, and serve one another. Diakoneo one another. Now, this is one of the passages that people use to argue, everybody's a deacon, so everybody should serve. I agree with that. Everybody should serve. We're all called to serve. But in the Bible, it's clear. And all you've got to do is get to know people in a small group. Not everybody meets the requirements of 1 Timothy 3 in the church. Let me read you that while you're writing that down. Dignified. Not double-tongued. Not addicted to much wine. They're not alcoholics, right? Not greedy for dishonest gain. They hold to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. They've been tested first, and then they're allowed to serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless, dignified. They're not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things, husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Serving as deacons, it says then, will provide you a good standing For themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in christ everybody in your small group certainly doesn't meet that requirement right not everybody lives up to that and if not everybody meets those requirements then you dare not get up in the church and say everybody's a deacon not everybody's a deacon there needs to be a second tier of leadership in the church that really have important duties to do duties that really are looked to by others as exemplary this is an important role and their lives are exemplary because of their qualifications not all meet the requirements of 1 Timothy 3, and not all have appointed specific tasks to do in the church. Let's look at uh, Acts 6, once you jot that down. And again, part of the problem with quoting the book of Acts is that it's an example, it's historical, it's not prescription. It's description. It describes what happened. It doesn't prescribe. The pastoral epistles, they prescribe. They tell us what to do. The book of Acts shows us what happened. We don't even have a discussion here between the Episcopos, Presbyteros, and Poiman and the Diakonos. We have a discussion between the apostles and the beginning, the prototype, the founding of, if you will, the role of the deacon. So it can't be used as, as prescription, but it certainly, we can look at it as description and find a little bit of the specific tasks and even the requirements in terms of character here in the text. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, verse 1 says, by the Hellenistic uh, Jews, right, these were the, um, the Hellenists, that just translates it here, uh, rose among the, the Hebrews. I mean, those that weren't Hellenized, weren't speaking Greek. They're, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, there were a problem. there was a bit of a division, there was discrimination going on here, it shouldn't have. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. But you know what is more than that? They had to solve the conflict. They had to deal with the problem. They had to deal with people who were not doing what they ought to do. They were over. I mean, this was more than just, hey, we need some people to set the tables up. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, this was, more, this was going into a hotbed of conflict. So these people were not just, hey, who's going to put the tablecloths out? And you know what? Oh, let's talk about, hey, how's your reputation? Are you full of the Spirit? Are you really wise? That doesn't even make any sense if this is just setting up tables. There's a duty and a responsibility here that the apostles are going to appoint to these people who are going to take charge of the conflict in the church, and they were going to solve it. He says, but we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. We've got to preach, we've got to study, we've got to pray. And while they said this, it pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and and then he lists all the people that were chosen. And verse 6, And they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. What does that mean? When you lay the hands on people, there's a commissioning of authority. The authority of the top tier of leaders in the early transitional church laid hands on a second tier of leadership who took real responsibility, solved real problems, had qualifications in their character to do work in the church. Not everybody has that kind of duty assigned to them, okay? So I just, I kind of want to fight the trend, I guess, with most of these churches today saying, oh, we don't have any deacons, right? We got deacons here at our church. They're called ministry leaders because if you translate the word deacon, that's what it means, ministry. And they're not just doing stuff, they're leading in those ministries. Is it gender specific? No, right? It's not gender specific. We have men and women serving as ministry leaders. That's a tier. It's real leadership. Certainly in a church like ours, there's real decisions. There's real work. There's stuff to do. But there's a tier above that where the administrative oversight comes from the gender-specific leaders in the church, the pastors, elders, if you will, overseers, bishops, whatever you want to call them. And it's 8.15 on the nose, man. Wow. And that's all I got. Let's pray. God, I know this isn't packaged like a Sunday morning with uh, real smooth transitions or illustrations or opening uh, Books and all the stuff that we do to, to passionately and persuasively present the Word of God, but it's the kind of roll-up-your-sleeve study that we need, so that when people are asking us, why don't you have, you know, Brenda is the pastor there, and you know, what's the deal with deacons in your church? We can answer those questions. We can recognize that the words that we use are reflections of the biblical text. We have pastors, we have ministry leaders, we have elders if you want to call them that, we have deacons if you don't want to call them that, we have deaconesses if you'd like to call them that, but God, in our church, these words communicate, I think, much more clearly. Pastors and ministry leaders. And God, in the church, we want to see the best rise to those levels of leadership and do the hard work that's involved in that. We would like to see a distinction of duties even to where those top seven leaders in our church can be devoted to a lot of prayer, a lot of study, and a lot of teaching. And that second tier can deal with a lot of the issues and the the, the conflicts and the problems and the, the service, the ministries that have to go on in this church. May we see that biblical uh, differentiation and, and even that biblical synergy between these two levels of leadership in our church. So God, thanks so much that we can learn from the text here tonight and even prepare ourselves to deal with a continuing shift in our culture to, to not want to see any distinctions uh, between genders, and clearly you've established some in the Bible. And for those that need to, to study this further, I'm sure this raised questions in people's minds. Let them go uh, a couple levels further, if, if not just in a, a sermon or two, maybe even into a book that they can read the one that I suggested and and maybe uh, dig a little deeper into God's Word and and the breadth of God's Word to answer these questions. But I pray at the end of the day we'd all come to unified decisions on this, that our church would be unified in our thinking about. This As 1 Corinthians one ten says, unified in in, in mind and thought regarding issues like this that really are important for us to agree upon. So God, get our church on the same page as it relates to gender-specific pastorate and to the... uh, Uh, male and female ministry leaders, uh, as we practice it here in our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.